Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I'm not saying we haven't had these dark chapters, but do we want to write a dark chapter in 2018? that's evocative of our worst moments as a nation. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. First off, I apologize if the sound on this intro is a little bit wonky. I'm recording this on a cell phone on the road uh, for reasons that will become very clear in a moment. Uh, But don't worry, the interview, this episode itself, it sounds great. We use real microphones and everything. Uh, You're going to love it. Okay, with that housekeeping out of the way, let me change emotional registers real sharply. Here's what I take to be the, the central question of American politics in the coming years. How do you hold together? much less govern, a country undergoing as much demographic change as our own. In 2013, America passed a milestone. A majority of infants under three were non-white. The Census Bureau thinks the whole country is going to look that way by 2045, will become, as they say, a majority-minority country. And it's not just race. The percentage of foreign-born Americans is nearing a record high. The percentage of non-religious Americans has been rising for decades. America is changing, and it's changing fast. It is changing faster than it has at other points, and people feel that. They don't always know how they feel it. They don't always know the census data, but they feel it. They see it. It it is changing what they see on television, who they see in their politics, what conversations we are having, what we are arguing over. As you all know, I'm writing a book about identity and politics, and, and everything I've learned suggests these trends are going to push America into a fragile and even dangerous place. I'd say looking at Trump and what powered his rise and what has happened since his rise, that they already have pushed America into a fragile and even dangerous place. So I wanted to talk to an elected official who governs successfully amidst massive diversity, who works in a place where these forces have already acted on the electorate and left a stronger, not a weaker place behind. Which is to say, I want to talk to LA Mayor Eric Garcetti. Garcetti governs in Los Angeles, one of the most diverse cities in the world. He was reelected in 2017 with an astonishing 81% of the vote. Uh, And he's publicly, and not coincidentally, considering an unusual run for president in 2020. Mayors don't usually make that jump directly, but his case for why is not crazy in my view, particularly not given who's president now. Garcetti is LA's first Jewish mayor, He's its second Mexican-American mayor, and I've covered him on and off for a while. And I've always found him to be unusually thoughtful on questions of diversity and national identity, perhaps because of the place he lives and works, and perhaps because of how many of those questions are bound up in his own biography. So when I was looking for a politician to ask hard questions about this too, uh, I thought of him. And I thought of his family, which in the week we were recording this was a particularly relevant story. And so that's where I began. Mayor Grossetti, thank you for being here. Great to be with you. Thanks. So I want to situate us in time. We're speaking at what I think is going to be the apex of Trump's child separation crisis, which manages to merge both the administration's policy towards immigrants and towards refugees into one pretty toxic hole. There's a lot of your family history tied up here. And so I'd like you to go through that a bit. What, do you, what are your roots in all this? Well, my roots are both personal and political. Um, First, personal, I'm a typical American, which is to say, like all of us, a mix of different things. And on my father's side, um, my grandfather, Salvador, was born in Mexico. Um, He was one year old when he lost his father during the Mexican Revolution. And my my bisabuela, my great-grandmother, literally picked him up 
and started walking like a parent does to try to save their child. And she uh, went through the border between Mexico and the United States in El Paso, and then eventually got her way all the way to Los Angeles. Um, my grandmother, who my grandfather later married, was the daughter of two Mexican immigrants who had come earlier and settled in Arizona. So when I think about, you know, would I, would I be here? What sort of life would they have had if my grandfather had been ripped out of his mother's arms and they'd been separated? This is very personal. Secondly, though, it's political. I lead a city of 4 million people in a metropolitan area that's now the third largest municipal economy in the world. And immigrants are the cornerstone of our story in Los Angeles, from people like Elon Musk, who are our top CEOs and wealthiest and, and most successful individuals, to the people doing the hardest work in our city. And families are complicated and usually blended. So the things that are happening at the border have resonance here because they probably are connected to families that already call Los Angeles home. So, and the other side of your family was, I know, not necessarily specifically refugee, but was fleeing yeah. when they came here. Absolutely. On my mom's side, they lived in what is now modern-day Poland and Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and they were part of the Russian Empire, the western part of the Russian Empire where Jews were allowed to live. And, uh, and yet those Jews were victims of pogroms, uh, forced conscription in the Russo-Japanese War. And it was about that time that the various great-grandparents on my mom's side all came fleeing that same oppression. You know, that's what America has been, a place that has been welcoming to the refugee, to the person who's oppressed. Our darkest chapters are those in which we've closed our borders, whether it was in the Holocaust, turning away the USS St. Louis um, or other chapters. And then, of course, you know, unless you're a native, you're an immigrant, with the exception of you know African Americans whose ancestors came in in chains. But we all came from someplace else, and the story of this country has been our nation's move towards not just acceptance of people, but allowing them to work hard, and not be judged by where they come from, but only what they want to contribute to this country. So the reason I wanted to draw this out is that it puts us right in the middle of what I think of as one of maybe the central narrative conflict in America right now, which is one way to read that story. And it's a story of American compassion. And it yokes our national identity to that compassion, the, the country that let your grandparents come here, stay here, and then that produced you, that that has been able also to benefit from having produced you. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the other side of that story, that people hear it. Um, so this is a Trump administration's argument quite often. It's a, there are a lot of stories like that. And we don't have open borders. And, you know, if you follow that story to its logic, isn't that what people are really calling for? So how do you, how do you make decisions when there is so much need in right. the world? I mean, look, both quickly become classic slippery slope arguments, which I try my very best in politics to always steer away from. Oh, are you totally for open borders, says the person from the right to somebody asking for hum more humane treatment of immigrants, or vice versa, uh, you know, folks on the left who it would say, oh, we don't need to have borders at all. And I think for any of us who are rational, this is more than about immigration this time. This move by the Trump administration was about what unites us as people, not as where we fit in the debate about immigration. Are we parents? Are we compassionate? Are we human beings first? And will we be guided by what we know that when a child is ripped away from his or her parents, that's traumatic, lifelong traumatic experience. And we can't go so far one direction to say, oh, it's unimportant for us to, for instance, have a border. And there's some calls for, you know, ICE shouldn't exist um, and shouldn't work in our cities. Well, we work, you know, in a city like Los Angeles to make sure that people who traffic children, women into the sex industry, into factories have consequences. And so we need federal law enforcement officials who work on that. When we have very dangerous criminals who are murderers or rapists, we probably want to deport them after they've served their time. But on the flip side, we have to also recognize the hypocrisy and the inhumanity of what is coming out of Washington and the policies towards immigrants, which goes completely against our own history. I'm not saying we haven't had these dark chapters, but do we want to write a dark chapter in 2018 that's evocative of our worst moments as a, as a nation? So I think, yes, this is about immigration, but it's also about our hearts. And can we think with our hearts in this country again first? That's the missing piece of the American identity right now. This has not been a country that defines itself 
by being at each other's throats, by pointing fingers, by scapegoating. That is not who we aspire to be, and that has not been what has united us. Um, and I think that's something that this White House fundamentally misses. Let, let's put the family separation piece of it to the side, mm-hmm. because that is, that's been such an appalling policy decision that even the Trump administration is trying to figure out as we speak how to back down with an executive order. But there is, I think, a, a simpler divide that all this is part of. And it is, there are folks in the country right now who see rising diversity, who see a rising non-white population, a rising foreign-born population, and they see that diversity as a strength. And there are people in the country who look at that same thing, look at, and they call up a a company and they hear press one for Spanish and they turn on the TV and they see more non-white faces and they feel that something is being taken away from them. They feel that there's a change happening too fast Mm -hmm. for them to really adapt to it. How do you move and is it a politician's job to move people from a discomfort with a rapidly changing country to a comfort with it? How do you make the changes America is going through demographically something that people see as a part, as a strength, as opposed to a threat? I think you have to unite a country around common work. It's very difficult to bridge cultural divides by sitting down and saying, hey, we should just all get to know each other. And can't you tolerate this diversity more, two words which to me are very shallow, you know, accepting diversity or tolerating people. I'd like to have a country that works together for a better quality of life for everybody across those lines. And I think some of those divisions begin to recede when we do that. And I'll give you an example. Here in LA after the riots in 1992, there was all this work where people wanted to say, hey, let's just get Koreans and African-Americans together. And they talked with each other and knew each other. Like it wouldn't be so bad. And that didn't really go anywhere. It wasn't until in diverse communities where Latinos and African-Americans and Korean-Americans lived that we started doing things like, hey, we don't have a park here in this neighborhood. Let's work on that together. Uh, There's too much gang crime. What can we do to make this a safer street? And then they got to know each other across those lines. But in other words, it's the work that cemented them, not an, an idea of bridging culture. If you don't have anything in common, trying to understand each other's differences is very difficult. But if you have the forces of government of political leaders pushing people together to work together, to make our schools better, to compete globally, to invest in the future, to do all the things that this federal government isn't doing anymore, then yeah, people do turn to each other and at each other's throats. And it's not new. I mean, people felt incredibly threatened by the Irish, incredibly threatened by the Italians. The numbers were much higher than today. Uh, maybe the colors are sometimes a little darker. The language is a new one. You know, these things that certainly give shock to communities that have been more monochromatic, but I I don't think that the solution is to somehow just hope that immigration policy solves that or that we can all just get along better if we know each other. We need political leadership that is about uniting us around the common work, not around just cultural bridges. Do Democrats know how to talk about diversity and national identity in a way that is inclusive of the uncomfortable as opposed to threatening to them? Uh, yeah, on one spectrum, side of the spectrum, I think Democrats are very good at speaking about the discomfort of what it means um, you know, to be a person of color and to have a different relationship with a police department or a feeling of that. We're good on one side of it, but the other side of it, Democrats seem to have lost the more national vision of what is a nation's identity. We run away from uh, too often just embracing patriotism of speaking about the United States as a a great nation and a great uh, people and a great country because we also have been critical about where we've gone wrong. Well, if you want to lead this country, I think you have to believe in this country. You have to feel comfortable speaking about its people and embracing all of its people. And that doesn't just mean all of its people in terms of ethnic minorities, um, talking about, you know, differences. It also means embracing every one of us, even people with different political perspectives sometimes. So we've kind of not just become a narrow tent, we, we have become much more tribal within ourselves instead of looking at the American tribe, which I think is very important to define. So there, there's often seen to be a tension between the coalitional politics of the Democratic Party, which have been different than the Republican Party. The Republican Party is more homogenous. And this national identity formation, this rhetoric of national identity you're talking about, as the Democratic Party becomes more uh, centrally dependent on Hispanic voters, on African-American voters, on young voters, as it, as it becomes more coalition uh, that is diverse, is it possible for it to still be speaking from a national place? Absolutely. I think if you look at coalitions, uh, 
and only think about them as groups of people, you still continue to segregate those people. If you look at representation and everybody belonging as a value across everything that you do, it becomes universal. In other words, if you just want to, uh, in City Hall, if I say, okay, I need to have a Bureau of Latino Affairs or something, and the past, you know, that was the first step when people weren't included at all in government, in campaigns, in parties. That was a good first step. But now we're beyond that. We should, we're not beyond race. We're not beyond ethnicity. In fact, we're deeper into it. We should just accept as a value that when you enter a room and it's a press conference with 10 men and there's no women, fix that. But you don't need to have anymore just a few specialized people dealing with gender affairs and women who only do women's issues. That's why we get into so much trouble as Americans. It's why people still are excluded. So I would say we have to start speaking in the voice of all of us that in a way that includes the values of each one of us. But, but so let me push you on that sure. because this is a place where the rhetoric around the rhetoric often seems to me to miss where the conflicts actually come in. You just gave, I think, a great example. You walk into a room, it's a panel. There are 10 men on the panel. Do you go on that panel or do you walk out? When I hear people complaining about identity politics, not just people on the right, but people who are uncomfortable, who see themselves as liberal, but are uncomfortable with what's happening on college campuses or elsewhere in the culture, they hear that complaint and they think, one, oh, why are you worrying about this at all? This is like, stop worrying about panels, stop worrying about who's on a television show, stop worrying about who's getting an Oscar. Like, this is ridiculous. Worry about the economy, worry about wages, worry about jobs. But the other thing is that that is also a place where people feel threat. If you're a white man and all of a sudden what you're hearing is that there's going to be gender equity across the government or across CEO boards, or you know that there's going to be a, a real effort to make sure college campuses are more diverse. We've seen this in California. One of the things you often hear in that is there's going to be fewer places for me. And it turns this from a space of rhetoric to a space of zero sumness. So how do you hold both those things together? How do you hold both the desire to speak to everyone with the fact that if you're then going to still be reflecting the specific claims and concerns and needs of, of, of groups, you're going to be stepping into these spaces of, of identity conflict? Well, look, if you're not talking about the big things, you're only talking about the little things. And that is no way to put that need to make sure we have representation wherever we are into a box of little things. But I mean, if we're not talking about our economy, if we're not talking about the strength of our nation, if we're not talking about our education system, if we're not talking about the things that universally are felt and needed by everybody, from an African-American woman who lives in the Midwest uh, to a, a white conservative man that's in Alabama, if you're not talking about everything, you are excluding someone. So you better have big things to talk about first and foremost and start your conversations and end your conversations there. But you can't take your eye away from where we are falling short because that means our economy has a drag on it when immigrants can't participate. When women aren't there in the boardroom, uh, we suffer. Uh, I mean, we can prove these things materially to folks. So I just fix them instead of talk about them. I don't leave that panel. I say, what are we going to do to fix that? I came in here as mayor and I looked at the boards and commissions that uh, I point about 300 people to oversee our departments. And within six months, I made them for the first time over 50% women. I think it was 53 or 54% women. Uh, and then so we could get back to business. And I thank some really good men for that. It wasn't a loss. They had been able to serve too. They felt a part of government. And I have, you know, in my core senior staff, I have a couple white men who are Republicans. You can't also be so doctrinaire that you're going to exclude anyone's voice because I think you suffer from it. Uh, to have a deputy mayor uh, who happened to have served as a Republic, elected Republican in the state enriches that table when we're going around in unpredictable ways. You might have the African-American woman say something more conservative than anybody at the table, and you might have that Republican white male say something on immigration that stops everybody in their tracks. You have to stop reducing us to these you know, categories and these false dichotomies. And if there's one thing that drives me crazy in this moment in American politics, it's the false cut between things, that we're red states and we're blue states and that we're rural and that we're urban and that we're coastal and we're heartland. I remember and, a speech someone gave like that a while back. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I do think there are two Americas. But I think it's Washington and the rest of us. And we live in local communities where we all live in diverse communities and families, period. So the threat anybody feels, we can all feel threatened. 
You know, you can feel threatened no matter what your color or gender or geography is. You really can. But that usually happens when people aren't talking about the big issues and solving the big challenges we have. And I think it's time for us to get off the false dichotomy and get back to what we need to be on offense about. Let me pick up on Washington and the rest of us. So I usually live in Washington. I've been, mm-hmm. to my great bliss, living in California for the last 10 weeks. Um, and it's nice out here. You yeah. guys have a nice coast. Yes. <laughs> I guess we, I'm a Californian. <laughs> I very much take the idea that when you're immersed in the national political scrum, which is what you mean by DC, right? Yes. You're, you're sort I don't of talking about city, DC symbolically. The, yeah, exactly. That it feels like something just different is going on. Yeah. Which it, I think that's right. And then on the other hand, there's a way in which the national political scrum is reflecting a country that it is reflecting conflicts that come out there because there isn't a way to get away from them. And when I was preparing for this interview, I was looking at the politics of, of LA and I found this stat that had made me rethink some things, which is from 1990 to 2010, the Latino population here increased by 37%. And the white population decreased by 51%. So I guess first, as we move into that, why do you think that was? Why why do you think there's been such a sharp change in LA's demographics? Um, You know, I think it's because we have been, first of all, that change is kind of, we've had an interesting history since the founding of this city. Um, This was a place that was first a Spanish city, then a Mexican city, then an American city. We had the biggest, one of the biggest Chinese populations. We were very accepting to Jews in the early or the mid 19th century. I just think that that's where the demographics were. We had a lot of immigrants. We've The Southwest has always been full of Latinos, so some of those aren't just that a bunch of people came over the border. A lot of us have been living here for four or five generations. Most Latino families I know have lived here longer than the average um, American family You know that is non-Latino, which you know has come a generation ago, say, in L.A. So I'm not so fascinated by the why it is. I mean... Who cares? Oh, so so I care. So, so I so, am but, fascinated but, by the way. But, here, but here is what I am. Here's what I don't know if it is true, but I suspect it may be. Hmm? One way of looking at California in this period when the country is becoming majority minority racially is that California reflects a successful navigation mm-hmm. of that diversification of, yep. a, of a country. I mean, this was a very conservative state not long ago. LA was a pretty conservative place for quite a while. Another way of looking at it is that what has happened has been exit. Not just that people have learned how to live together, but a lot of people looked around and said, you know what, this place is changing, I'm out. And the reason I brought it up when you you say DC and the rest of the country is that nationally, it's not that we can't do that, right? We could all move to Canada or, I mean, there are different places you could go, but it's much harder to leave your country than it is to leave a state. There's been a huge amount of California exodus to places like Texas, places like Arizona. And that may reflect people's preferences about what kind of, society, what kind of place they live in. Now, I don't know if that's true, but but one thing I worry about when I, I frame it as a pure success story is, well, maybe it was a selection story. Maybe a lot of people left here because they didn't like what they were seeing around them. And so instead of this being a, an example of, success, of a nationally usable model, it's actually um, the thing we're concerned about. Well, I, I don't know if those were percentage-wise. Those were, yeah. And they're that, also, they're also so absolute. In other words, a lot of of Anglos, as, as whites are called out here, stayed, and but more Latinos came. So no, no, so sorry, I should say this too. There was a, an absolute fault. It went from like 5 million to 2 point. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I checked that. So look, I mean, this is still an incredibly diverse city. We've got, you know, 30-something countries with the largest population outside their home country. 63% of Angelinos are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. I just point to the success of California. This is a place that works and a place where everybody belongs. I don't think people left because they didn't feel like they belong. I think that if you talk to your average white resident in Los Angeles, they feel very much that this is their home. Latinos feel that this is very much their home. There is always that cultural dissonance that happens for some people. I mean, it happened when all the Irish came to Boston, um, but that's very much a part of what Boston is. And I love going to Boston, you know, and, you know, I think I have a, a strand of Irish in me, but like most Americans, but I'm not very Irish. Um, and that's not a part of my personal cultural tradition. So to me, I think we spend so much time as a country obsessed about culture and belonging in the divisive way that we've lost the conversation about talking about that in the uniting way. And I do think that in my experience over time, 
you don't have many people offering a vision of what the nation is. And the nation is different than the state. The state is a government and borders. The nation is the people. It's what's always made America very special. It was one of the most diverse nations in the world when it was founded uh, in the categories they had, the religious diversity. Uh, I mean, you looked at this country, that's always been part of what we've struggled with, but ultimately embraced by finding common threads. On one hand, we have a party, the Republican Party, that's shredding those threads. On the other, we have a party that too often can only describe each of the threads instead of the fabric itself. We need to get back to an America where we're actually talking about that common fabric again, and we're not trying to rip it apart. So I'm going to give you the softball to end all softballs here, (laughs) Uh, and you're welcome. Talk to me about that fabric, because one thing I do see happening, one thing I do see happening is national leadership focuses the mind. And right now, there's a lot of national leadership on our points of maximum conflict. Mm -hmm. And so it is priming all of us. It is giving us a lot of ways to think about the places in which we disagree and the places in which we're having a lot of trouble navigating the changes in this country. You are in a a genuinely thriving city Mm -hmm. that is deeply diverse. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like, not on a meta level, but on an actual level, when you try to focus people on the places where diversity or just the mix of America are working? What, what, what do those topics look like? What is that? What, when you describe that fabric, how do you describe it? Well, I see it all across America. I see when I go to Indiana with my wife, who's from Indianapolis, and yeah, sometimes there's Spanish at the airport, and you look and you can see the diversity in that city in the middle of the Midwest. It's more concentrated in LA maybe than most other places, but I actually see it throughout America, uh, which is great. You know, when I was in Iowa, you drive through and you see Hmong and African run businesses and restaurants, and you you see this isn't just something that's kind of a coastal phenomenon. I mean, if you if you believe what you read, you'd think that this is exceptionalism, and it's really happening across America. And that I think is part of the difficult moment that people are facing. It's coming to some places it hasn't come to before. And there's no place it ever comes to where there isn't some cultural dissonance. You know, uh, certainly happened here in Los Angeles. The biggest mass um, lynching in American history was of Chinese Americans two blocks from where we're speaking right now in the late 1800s. So these things are part of our history no matter where we are. But I do think that here in Los Angeles, we've gotten to a point where you can live with that fabric, not just as something that's interesting, but something that you feel is your own. So that a Koreatown in Los Angeles is majority Latino, where everybody embraces the Korean culture that's there, that abuts you know, a big Bangladeshi community and probably dozens of other cultures, but everybody kind of owns it. They feel like it's theirs, they belong. And I think that's the big thing right now for America is there's too many people on any spectrum or any kind of ethnic rainbow who feel that they don't belong. Can you say more about the word belonging? You've used it a few times. Um, What does it mean to you? It's different than diversity, acceptance, tolerance, all those things that a multi-ethnic country usually were given the options of like either accept it and tolerate it or it's just called diversity. Diversity means we're still kind of in our own narrow lane, defined by one thing defined by our ethnicity, defined by our parents' language or religion, when I think most people do feel an American identity and they want to belong. When I talked about national identity, that comes from the Greek word for birth. We're not all from the same family. We're not a blood nation or an ethnic nation, a mythical ethnic nation like other parts of the world. We're a civic nation, but there's something that we do share through our birth. We share through our life here in America. And That's the piece to me that's missing is right now people feel lonely, isolated, cut out. And when politicians say, oh, you can blame that person as to why, that's very resonant for a lot of people. That's Trumpism. And that's usually much more powerful, you know, as Bill Clinton has said, the politics of division and subtraction. But over time, I think we all get traumatized by that. And we do hunger to go back to a politics of addition and multiplication that Americans want to think of themselves as fighting for the underdog and being generous to one another. They don't want that to always be done by government for them, but they do feel a sense of not belonging. 
And the second thing why belonging is important is I don't think people feel free right now. And it's not the freedom that we talk about, either left or right, of negative freedoms, of the right to my gun or the right to my reproductive rights or the right to marry whomever. It's the right to, that people don't feel the freedom anymore to live a good quality of life, the freedom to send their kids to college, the freedom to be one medical bill away from bankruptcy. Those two things right now of kind of a sense of belonging culturally to a nation and a sense of freedom economically, I think are the two twin pillars of what I call this age of anxiety. It's like anxiety and excitement at the same time. These amazing things that are happening that we're still, I think, optimistic and excited to see and be a part of, but the tremendous anxiety that goes on top of that, this kind of anxiety we live with of technology is great, but will I have a job? They're curing diseases, but can I afford my health care? And so on and so forth. And that's why I think belonging is so important and the idea of freedom is so important to be talking about again. How, how do you foster belonging? How is that something that leaders or governments have the power to do? I think demanding um, a common compact again of participating and solving our nation's problems, that welcoming people to the table and then when they're at the table, uh, not demanding, but expecting that we all have a responsibility to give to each other and to this nation, that it is through our own labor and through our own hearts and through our own, you know, gut work that we will stay great. But make that concrete for me. How do you, how do you give? You're, you're somebody who feels alienated from the political system. Like it doesn't care about you. You live in, you live in Indiana, as right. you mentioned. How, how do you, so, so how do you mean, participate? Here in Los Angeles, it's, uh, you look at people living in tents on the streets and we give them a way to participate, whether it's volunteering or voting for the two biggest measures to build housing for homeless um, and to provide services for our homeless in the cities and I think this nation's history. Um, you give people the opportunity to say traffic sucks and local government isn't broken completely. Washington feels like it is and I don't expect you know, a Dwight Eisenhower to come uh, with a you know, interstate uh, highway system, but I'll vote for Measure M, our initiative to build 15 rail lines because maybe I won't feel it right away, but my kids, I hope, will so that they're not stuck in this soul-crushing traffic. And then you 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 bring people together who aren't always at the table with one another. I gave a graduation speech recently and I said, you know, if you're rabidly anti-Trump, when's the last time you sat down with a Trump voter for a while? Just, just listened. Not like got into a debate, but just like listened and not on the two or three things that are the most divisive. Just understand a person. Do you know somebody from the military? Have you ever like talked to a vet? Just to, just to hear what their life's like. They either get fetishized as like all superhero SEAL Medal of Honor winners um, or people don't know them at all. And most people who serve in the military are somewhere between those two caricatures uh, and vice versa. You know, have you ever sat down with somebody who's trans and understood you know, her journey? Um, we just don't do much listening anymore. And I think if we're going to get people to belong and, and feel like they belong, they have to feel listened to. It's funny. I've been thinking a lot about the idea of listening because... The debate we're having over identity politics and political correctness, when you really hear what people are getting upset about, a lot of it seems to me to come down to listening. You don't hear oh, me. You don't see me. Yeah. That, or conversely, somebody saying, I'm offended by you saying that I don't understand your experience because I'm a white man. Mm -hmm. There is a question I think that we all have to answer a lot, which is, when we hear someone say that something is wrong for them, how much weight do we give it? Mm -hmm. Or how much do we look at it from our own lens and say, well, that's not wrong for me. That's never bothered me. Those microaggressions, I, I don't think I would even notice them if they happened to me. And it, it does feel to me that a lot of divides right now, and it, it's true on both sides. I mean, I think a lot of people hear pain from Trump voters and they say, this is ridiculous. You're part of the most dominant group the world has ever known. If you're in this case, a white man, you know, how, how dare you have pain? <laughs> There's a real question of when is listening merited? When is it weak? And when is somebody demanding you listen to them cover for them not having to change their own views? You know, you know politics is, um, and political discussions is so often about the process of dehumanization. And we have to find a way to rehumanize through politics, which is just the engagement of people, one another. 
you know, I, I always love the fact that the word for politics and city also come from the same Greek root, polis. So people came to the city and politics wasn't some funky, weird thing that was for specialists to do. It wasn't for like a, just Washington to go off and, and Congress to discuss. It was an expectation in a Greek city. Everybody, at least who was a citizen, had to engage in that. That was part of part and parcel of the protection of the city. And the best advice that was ever given to me was my predecessor on the city council, a woman named Jackie Goldberg, once told me, you can't dismiss people's fear. You have to understand it. And she was talking about affordable housing, how sometimes people were like, I don't want affordable housing built next to me. And it's been the most important lesson for me. I don't dismiss fear. We had protests over proposal for a, a emergency shelter uh, in Koreatown section of Los Angeles. And I could have heard all those protests and said, oh, you guys are a bunch of bad people. You just don't understand. And that's the problem with politics today, whether it was the deplorables or whether it's vice versa, you know, plenty of people who say you're, you're cops and you're all a bunch of fascists. We don't humanize one another. We don't understand and hear that. It, we don't have to agree with it to first hear where it comes from and to feel it because you will never transform yourself or that person if you don't understand where it comes from. And so I always say, I never dismiss people's fears. I listen to them and try to understand them. I may still stick to my point, but it helps me now explain, oh, I get where you're coming from. And that actually makes sense what you're saying. Let me tell you why I think this solution, though, is the best way forward for all of us. And we've lost that ability. So we just kind of dehumanize each other, trolls on the feed, uh, the back and forth of social media, so-called debates, disruptions at town halls. You know, I never won an election by talking. I won an election by listening every time I've run. And if you can't do that and accept and, and hear people's fears, you won't move this country forward. We'll just dig in deeper. There is a way in which listening to people's fears, it, it sounds real good. And then you hear that the fear is that when Mexico is sending their people, they're not sending their best. Mm -hmm. Or you hear the fear is that you know MS-13 is streaming over the border. Or you hear the fear is that affirmative action is leaving no space for white kids in, in, in colleges. Or from the other side, you hear the fear is that the government is not big enough. You hear that the fear is that the state is not providing literally everyone health insurance when that sounds ridiculous to you. I think it is a pretty un unusual political talent for someone to be able to both be principled in public debate without making their opponents more afraid. Mm -hmm. And the media, my industry, we do not help with this. We we report the scariest things <laughs> everybody truth, says. <laughs> yep. But I do think this is a time, and now it's on both sides, of unbelievably intense fear. The right became very afraid under Obama. Um, something was dramatically changing. The Tea Party was a movement of fear. The left is very afraid under Trump. And in 2020, you're going to have a lot of people running on the Democratic side, very possibly including you, who are navigating a country that is as afraid of itself and each other as it has been in memory, um, certainly in living memory. How do you speak up for people who need to be spoken for while navigating the fears of the, the very powerful fears of um, those on the other side? You can only embrace fear for so long, both individually and I think collectively. And I think too many people are falling in the trap of that fear of staying in that debate. I just said you have to be able to listen to people's fear, but I don't spend a long time, like I don't say now for the next hour, just keep telling me more and more about that. You got to understand where it comes from. And then you got to think through a way out of that where you give people hope, where you give people a different way forward. We say there is a role for you and a place for you in the future economy. And I understand why you fear that. We can create something where you have decent retirement and healthcare. Um, we can create jobs even as your sector is being threatened in manufacturing or coal uh, to be able to have a really good middle-class existence. And I think there have been much darker days in American history, for sure, before you and I were born, but just before I was born, too. I mean, the fear was so great that riots in cities were every day and people were being killed who are political leaders. I mean, let's not forget those moments and, and pretend like this yeah, is— Yeah, I should have said in my living memory. Yeah, yeah no, no me, <laughs> me too. I mean, that was before me, yeah. too. But, but even when we were younger, there was pretty intense stuff. Uh, I'm a little bit older than you, but I mean, during the— Reagan years in Central America, and I was a small child, but Watergate was like, oh my God, our democracy is literally falling apart. We had corruption coming right out of the White House, 
then. I'm, I'm glad that stopped. <laughs> yeah, it was exactly. Thank God we live in this era where that could never happen. Um, but we have, at this moment, if you look at America, it always rises back to hope. If you look at the people who replenish this democracy, if you look at the leaders who come and reignite the American experiment, it is, you know, Obama used hope, Clinton used hope. Um, you even have W, you know, come in with faith-based initiatives, things that I didn't think were going to solve the problems. I have a different political philosophy, but he was talking about immigration reform and was a pro-immigrant Republican from Texas. I mean, there's these moments where- Although he used a lot of people's fears for his own purpose too. Certainly after 9-11, yep. absolutely. And and look, and Democrats have used people's fears too. Let's not, not no stone to go unturned. But we absolutely, I think, have a moment now where people, we're all going to shrivel up and crawl into a corner if we live in this much fear for much longer. Los Angeles specifically is navigating a crisis that I would think would have a, a great effect on the city's fear. Um, homelessness here has exploded. It's, it, I mean, you'll, you'll know the numbers better than I do, but depending on the year you're looking at, 40,000, 50,000 people in LA County, something like 25,000, I think you said, in, in, mm-hmm. in, in the city, um, unsheltered each night. We're in City Hall. You don't, you, you don't have to go... I mean, I can walk to Skid Row yeah. and it's, you know, like, I mean, I grew up, my family's Brazilian or half of it's Brazilian and it looks like a favela yeah. almost. Let me, let me start by just setting the, the, the policy up here. How did, what has happened to explode LA's homelessness problem? Well, it's not unique to LA. Um, I mean, we're, I think, fourth or fifth per capita. Washington, D.C. is actually, I think, number one. I mean, it's all around this country. In the West Coast, it's a little bit more, but you see... Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Oakland, San Diego, Los Angeles, just on the West Coast, you see an explosion. Partially, we have better weather, so more of it's on the street than other places where you'll die and you have to go in. But it's really been a conspiracy of, I think, neglect and trauma, untreated trauma. You have people who've come back from the longest wars in American history with PTSD, veterans on our streets, uh, children who have emancipated from a foster care system that doesn't help them enough survivors of sexual and domestic violence, a tough economy, high rents, conspiring together. I always say two things on the street really explain homelessness, trauma and high rent. We didn't build enough housing in those cities that are now roaring back. It's it's because our economies are strong and people say, how can we have homeless people when the economy is strong? I say it's precisely because of that. And there's more jobs than units of housing. And then I think the national conversation, which is totally missing, is the mental health crisis. You have so many Americans who are suffering from mental health afflictions, often manifesting themselves now in addiction, which is how they're self-treating these in absence of any medical health and any system of mental health care in this country. And I would say three out of four people on our streets have some sort of addiction or have faced some sort of addiction. And I welcome that national conversation because we see it in different manifestations around the country, but it is now cheaper to get high than it is to get drunk. People are addicted to stronger and stronger drugs. And we don't treat it like a broken leg. You and me, we both have a broken leg. We go to the, the emergency room, we'll both get treated. But if we are, both have a deep addiction and a mental health issue, maybe one out of 10 of us will get treatment right now. And so cities who really don't have the dollars for things like, I have no hospital system, that's part of my county. I have no anti-addiction dollars. I don't have, you know, I don't control the foster care system, the returning veterans, all this stuff, people getting out of jail and prison and not getting some safety net to catch them. We're the last stop. And we're the ones who suddenly have to clean up the mess of public policy failure from the feds all the way down. I accept that responsibility because I care incredibly deeply about this issue. It's the issue I probably spend the most time on. But talking to mayors, Republicans, Democrats, high rent, lower rent cities, this is a national crisis. And while we have the biggest absolute number, it's not even the worst off city in America. And uh, at the same time, I'm extremely hopeful in Los Angeles. We haven't been flat-footed. We passed, as I mentioned, the two biggest uh, homeless initiatives in the nation's history, one for housing, to build housing for people who are homeless, and one to greatly expand the services on our street to help people get towards that housing. But we're scraping every dollar in our own budget to accelerate that and go even further because I think it is the greatest moral and humanitarian crisis of our time. What do you say to the people who look out at Skid Row and they say, just get rid of it. Go kick them out, fold the tents up, clean the street. You know, they're, they're, 
there has always and is now in LA um, a certain amount of a certain number of folks who say, you know, the problem with homelessness is that we tolerate it, that it's a kind of disorder, and you know what we need is is a law and order politics. Yeah, we don't have much of that voice. I think people have dealt with homelessness for so long they know that that just pushes it to another neighborhood. We don't have the the people power to force everybody to not set up anywhere. We actually have to, and it's a lot more expensive to do that. We have to actually solve people's homelessness. And last year we had the first dip in homelessness in our count because we find we've more than almost doubled the number of homeless solutions. I've housed as many people as were homeless as when I started. Uh, I think people understand that also a lot of these people are survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Women on the street, you're going to just kick them out and say, hey, stop being homeless. You're going to take a family living in a, a camper uh, or a van and say, get the hell off the street and you can't go anywhere else. So I'm, I'm proud that my city is both tough and uh, big hearted. And I think people know that from both a practical perspective as well as a human perspective. You can't just push it from one place to the next. It's finally time to solve it. The, the other side of this is, as you mentioned, housing costs. Rent for a studio in LA went up by 92% over the last six years, or roughly the last six years. That's extraordinary. It's happening in other cities. I mean, San Francisco has a very well-known housing crisis. Mm -hmm. Certainly rents have not been stable in Washington, D.C. But this is a zoning crisis as much as it is anything else. Why has it become so hard to build in these cities, given given what the demand is? I can't speak for other places, um, but NIMBYism in Los Angeles, the not-in-my-backyard philosophy, really is, is dying off. We have been upzoning some very key corridors all around Los Angeles and neighborhoods were investing in rail lines and busways. And we recently had a hearing in which we were talking about our new expo line, which takes you to the beautiful Pacific Ocean that had opened up, what kind of zoning we would need. Can buildings go higher? Can they be more dense? And you had the usual folks who kind of said, no, no more density. Traffic's so bad. If you build anything, it's going to be worse. But we had more people for the first time who turned out not ginned up by developers or anybody out of City Hall who said, the city isn't even going high enough. You need to go higher than these quote-unquote radical upzoning that you're doing. And in the first six months of a new policy where we allow much more density along those key stops on our light rail line, we had over, I think, 6,000 units to apply for approvals. We're in the midst of having completed or completing 100,000 units of housing in our city. Los Angeles can't do it alone. We're a donut hole and a larger donut, so we need the neighboring cities to join with us. But you're exactly right. The only way out of a housing crisis, while you subsidize from the bottom up to try to keep people off the streets, is also top-down, just number of units that are being built, which is why I've been so passionate about building our way out of this crisis. So a lot of the things we're talking about here, homelessness, housing crisis, uh, diversity in, in, in politics... These have national implications, but a lot of it is managed on the local level. Mm-hmm. You've been very public about your interest in running for president in 2020, or at least that you're considering it. And what's come up in that conversation a lot is that, well, mayors don't run directly for president. Uh, it would not be strange for the governor of Montana to run for president, even though it's a much smaller state than mm-hmm. LA as a city. But there is a surprise that comes up in the conversation when they hear mayors, and you're not the only one, are, are considering running for president. What do people miss about being mayor, about running a city, when they don't see it as preparation for national office? You know, I would love to see Washington, D.C., not just the White House, be taken over by a group of mayors. I was recently in Boston for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and we had 25 of the top mayors from maybe the 50 most populous cities and we had a great dinner together. We talked about how we're going to combat climate change because from the mayor of Houston, who had hurricanes, to out here in L.A. where we had historic fires from the drought, we know it's real uh, and we're dealing with it. We talked about immigration and um, you know, mayors from both sides of the political spectrum were saying we've got to solve this and figure out a way to have a pathway towards citizenship. We talked about overregulation and the need to why it's so difficult to build things in this country anymore. Uh, because we have so much red tape and so many well-intended regulations, but it slows us down and makes us less competitive. And at the end of the night, some of the mayors actually asked each other, by the way, what party are you from? Like, in other words, two hours went by, a common conversation, a unified group of American political leaders who then asked, by the way, what party you are, and didn't even know. For instance, the mayor of Cincinnati, I think, found out the mayor of Miami was Republican and vice versa, uh, but they hadn't started there. And I think you know, mayors have to run things. We don't fix imaginary problems. We fix real ones. We have ports 
and airports that we run. So we understand international trade intimately. Homeland Security, we have in Los Angeles 10,000 police officers um, and deal with that, I think, in a much more immediate and intimate way than most governors do. Uh, we you know, have to run economies. We have to literally make trains run on time. We have to invest in infrastructure. We have to make sure that we're investing in key industries that will provide jobs for our people, which is a good metaphor for what our national leaders should be doing and are not. Um, we understand environment and energy. I run the largest municipal utility in the uh, country. Um, so water and power issues and the future of green power. I mean, I would love to see a whole bunch of mayors who kind of put down partisanship, who I think stand up for pretty universal values of inclusion and belonging, but also are effective at getting things done. As a mayor, I can lower my city's business taxes I did and raise the minimum wage at the same time. In Washington, if you're a Republican, you could only do one of those two things. If you're a Democrat, you're expected to do only one of those two things. And yet both were the right thing to do. And I think that that is, Americans are sick and tired of that side of partisanship that won't allow people to think independently and get things done and that scores success is how many tweets and retweets you get rather than the projects you complete. When I hear the more idyllic vision of local government, which you, you do hear when you talk to mayors, is mm -hmm. sort of, we have to get things done on the local level and we're able to, we're able to come together. We don't have such bitter divisions. I wonder if it isn't because if you're running a city, the city is going to be filled with people who live there. It's a smaller unit than the national government. I think the counter argument to what you're saying is that perhaps running a place that is more unified, that does have more of a common identity and a common sense of place, isn't great training for the level of fractiousness we're now seeing at the national level, where people who have decided to live in incredibly different ways are listening to mutually exclusive information sources, seeing the world in a mutually exclusive way. And that sort of conflict is, is all coming together in Washington, D.C. Um, what are there really lessons from running cities for managing that level of national discord? Well, let me flip it the other way. If we surrender to a Washington style of politics, we might as well surrender this country for good. And I'm serious. I mean, if, if we're going to say all we can look for in our national leaders is people who understand that this is the age of division and need to divide us further, uh, chalk up our success by what we can take away from our coastal protections to our health care, to our immigration protections, to even our local funding for law enforcement, as, as we're seeing come out of the Trump administration, we might as well pack up and, and surrender this country altogether. I'm not so Pollyannish that I think that uh, mayors can go to D.C. and everybody's going to put down their arms. They're not going to be partisans. We've got a deeply entrenched system that doesn't work for the people. It works for parties over people. It works for special interests over people. But everybody lives in a local community where they still understand democracy. They don't love everything that happens in their local community. Our challenges are deep from homelessness to traffic to poverty. So we don't say that it, life is great in all of our cities. But we're working hard on solving those things, not on scoring political points. And that's the contrast. And somebody has to say to Washington, D.C., enough is enough is enough. You are not here for yourselves. You're not here for your party. You're not here for your special interests. You are here for America. And I think Americans still do that at their local community because it's where their family lives. It's where their job is. It's where they pray. It's where they play. We have gotten away from that, I believe, in the leadership of our nation's capital. You're going to like the first half of this question and not the second. We're sitting here. <laughs> so just and, ask me the first half. <laughs> we're sitting here and I see a picture of you and President Obama mm -hmm. um, leaning against the wall. And when I talk to you, I hear a lot of the arguments President Obama made when he was running the first time, when he was running 2008. I, I joked earlier, you know, that we're not a red and blue America, that we're not yeah. urban world, that these are false divisions. But also the idea that Washington needs somebody to come there and say, you're not here for yourself. Mm -hmm. You're running this like it's a game. It's not a game. I look at Obama's presidency and I see somebody who, you know, really did believe all that, really did believe that there was a way to come to that city and call people to their higher selves. And he left and American politics was more divided than when he came. He left and Donald Trump was what followed him. What is your explanation for why this is the aftermath of the Obama presidency, given that I think you do have respect for President Obama and, and the sincerity with which he approached his work? Look, I have not only deep respect, but friendship um, with President Obama, um, who has been a friend and a mentor and somebody I worked extremely closely with. And we accomplished amazing things together from healthcare to dealing with climate change. There is no question that he lived in 
And we've had two or three decades steadily marching towards greater and greater partisanship. Ironically, at a time when Americans are marching more and more away from parties, the loud minorities who cling fiercely to that are heard very loud and the amplification is easier than ever before. But if you look at voter registration, if you talk to millennials, I mean, there's kind of people don't want to be party people anymore. They want to actually be individuals. They want to serve. They will listen to the pitch of parties, but they will make up their mind each election. And so I think he was, you know, at the receiving end, remember six of those years, he really had no party to work with in Congress. And I don't believe, by the way, that that meant that he had to have Democrats because in the past under, for instance, Reagan, Democrats and Republicans, they, they compromised some of the stuff that they did together. Now there's like death penalty uh, groups that have literally st stepped forward and said, if you ever do anything with them, we will take you out and do that. Um, and I don't, again, pretend that that will reverse itself overnight. And anybody looking for a savior in 2020 to either save the country single-handedly or to deliver a reversal of that, that cavalry is not coming. But I do believe that if we look at 2018 and the work that we can do inside states and not just at the national level, if we focus on those things that are working at the local level and demand that they be everywhere and build a grassroots constituency for that, from ending gun violence to combating climate change to making it easier to get things built and building out a crumbling infrastructure in America, then I do think that that will shift. We've got to at least tilt it in a different direction. And I think President Obama, President Trump, were at what I hope to be the tail end of that momentum towards greater partisanship. It won't go nonpartisan overnight. It may take many presidents and Congresses to get there. But I hope the American people rise up and demand that because I see that still happening at the local level. I'll say that I'm more pessimistic than you. I think we are not nearly at the tail end of the partisanship. I think it's getting worse. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of there's a lot of data behind that. I take your point about people calling themselves independents, but, but they're voting like partisans. But something that I do wonder is I always wonder about the counterfactual Donald Trump. The Donald Trump who came in and it turned out the election kind of was a con and he came in and he worked on infrastructure the way he said he would. And he probably did his tax cut bill too, but he didn't come in with the travel ban. He, you know, let go of some of that. I do wonder if there isn't a version of an agenda that is a little bit more the local trash pickup agenda, the roads and, you know, infrastructure agenda. One of the dynamics of politics as I see it is that we are very focused on the things that are that, that arouse the most conflict. And on the one hand, there's good reason for that. Sometimes we're arguing over things that are very important, but also constituencies within the parties. Um, there's a dynamic to them that pushes politicians to come out stridently on things where there's a lot of excitement. So on the one hand, it seems to me a plausible path towards bringing down tensions is to run a somewhat more boring both campaign and presidency. On the other hand, there are obvious reasons why more boring campaigners and more boring presidents uh, have trouble politically. So I'm curious how you think about how you think about that theory or that tension. Look, I think that's spot on, but I don't think that um, the small things make you boring or have to make one a boring campaigner. When I was out there running for mayor, we talked about big visionary things like let's go after the Olympics, which we did and we won the Olympics and people are excited and it's transforming and can transform the city once again. But people really wanted to know that their streets were going to be paved. They were passionate. It was sexy to them. It's the biggest thing. They told me the particular pothole. When we were able to come in with this, my administration here and say back to basics first, do your core job first, it liberated us to also go after the big things like trying to end homelessness, uh, be a part of solving climate change, being able to uh, go after the Olympics, attract the Lucas Museum, raise the minimum wage. But if you're not paving the streets, if you're not fixing things up, I think it would be a relief to the American people for someone to come in and to say in a dynamic way, let's do our core work first. Let's get that back. Let's think about where people live and their healthcare and whether they can pay for college and what their housing struggle is. Let's talk about where your job will be in the future. Sometimes we're like, no, let's let's talk North Korea, let's talk immigration, let's talk, you know, reproductive rights, like things that we also have to have the capacity to talk about when asked. But I think the American people would embrace, would be relieved, would find it incredibly attractive 
to have a conversation about where they actually live. I don't see those as unexciting. And I think anybody who sees those as small things doesn't understand the American people. And I'm not saying you said this, but those folks who would say, oh, that's not what presidents do, it's condescending to the American people. American people live their life trying to make their family unit, their block, their local community a little bit better. We spend 99% of our time there, not 99% of the time in Washington or in international relations. And I think that done right, people would let us do the big stuff following that when they trust you, when they trust that what you want is something better for them. I know you've got a city to run, so I'll ask you the question we used to wrap up the podcast, which is, what are three books you've read over the years that you've liked that have influenced you that you think the audience should check out? Three books. Um, I love a book of poetry by Marge Percy called Stone, Paper, Knife. Uh, it's a, about 20 years old now, maybe even a little bit longer, but it's, it speaks to the never-dying idealism of how we find the biggest things in our fellow flesh, our brothers and sisters, our people around us. Uh, that's a great, great book. I love Jorge Luis Borges, his book, Ficciones or Fictions, which has a lot of short stories. Um, short stories definitely keep my attention. I'm so busy. But it also kind of speaks to the randomness of the universe and how so much depends on, on luck and the fantastical. And uh, third, if nobody's read it, I think what it takes is the great classic of running for president. Uh, you know, in the 1988 presidential elections, Richard Ben Kramer, it's a great, great book and one uh, that I've always enjoyed. Yeah, those would probably be the three that I'd throw out there. Mayor Garcetti, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you to Mayor Eric Garcetti for giving us the time. Uh, that was the Ezra Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Speaking of Vox Media, if you're not watching Explained on Netflix, what kind of person even are you? What's wrong with you? Got to get that fixed. Anyway, as always, thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. We will be back with another interview about something potentially tearing our country apart or bringing it together. Who knows? Maybe it'll be an optimistic episode next week. 